0: Hey, welcome back to the big esports podcast the first episode that we've recorded in 2021 in this episode we've got uh, two men jan and justin coming on from Game Square esports a publicly listed esports company that is building its own ecosystem within the market they've acquired code red a uk-based agency that i've used a bunch of times to influence campaigns but also these two men are both ex phase clan justin uh, previously being the cfo as well so quite high up in there too had a lot to talk about today um i think I don't know if I've talked about this in content before, but definitely privately with some of my friends, associates and mentors. I've talked so much about building an ecosystem in this space, so I had a lot of questions to ask these guys. And another interesting tidbit I talk about as well is debt financing. It's something that started to come into the esports market and something I think that's going to start being much more common and publicly announced. So we talk about a bit of debt financing 101 as well with the ex-CFO Justin Kenner. So hope you enjoy this episode. I did. Enjoy. Justin, Jan, we're live. How are you?
1: Going well.
0: Good. All That's good.
1: good.
0: That's good. Well, it's good to talk to another Aussie on here. Actually, I've I think I've um I think out of all the nationalities besides US, Aussie would probably come second and so many of those Aussies are living abroad just like yourself, Justin. How's how's life over in the big smoke?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. I we we've been looking at a couple of opportunities in Australia but <clears throat> the the esports community in Oz is huge, but I, I haven't come across that many in, in my dealings thus far. Um, but you always get a few comments. I guess number one, the Australian accent, but number two, the the gravelly voice. So uh always get a few comments from people not understanding you via Zoom into all sorts <laughs> of different countries.
0: Yeah, I never, I never understood how hard Australians were to understand until um, I worked for some Taiwanese companies and went to Taiwan. And they could understand my British counterparts perfectly fine and they could understand my US counterparts, but they could never get what I was saying. And I always thought, like, what's, what's wrong with me?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's why we brought Jan on board because he's just this, you know, beautiful, articulate English man who can just, he's just like a travelling translator, really. Thanks, mate. I'm
2: actually German, and I have no idea what you two have been talking about, to be honest. It's <laughs> so. But
1: you've, but you've acclimatized to the UK beautifully. Perfectly, so right? Perfectly. Yeah.
0: fantastic so um, I guess this is you know for anyone who's tuning in live I can see some people have started coming in here on LinkedIn and on Twitch as well Um, you know this is kind of our first you know big esports podcast or or big gaming live for the year Um, and thought I might kick it off with a bit of a bang so with you guys with with Justin and Jen I guess you're both you know, fairly new to Gamesquare esports as a whole. To be frank, I hadn't heard of Gamesquare Esports before you guys came on and obviously you have some star started history in the market. So I was wondering if maybe we could start with Justin. Can you just give a little bit of a recap into, you know, who you are, where you came from and, and what Gamesquare is as your new position there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So Hi, uh, obviously, I'm Australian, as, as you pointed out beautifully, Chris. I came over to the States about six years ago. I was actually running strategy and finance for a production company at the time, but uh, was introduced by a friend, a, a fellow Australian who, who was working in Europe at the time, was introduced to the guys at PhaseClan, Clan, and they were actually looking at, at the time, trying to acquire PhaseClan. This is, you know, roughly four years ago, so, so pretty early days. Phase uh, had an enormous following, uh, but but he but but not so much, uh, you know, from a business sense. So in terms of, you know, I was introduced to Phase roughly four years ago. Started talking with them, you know, understood how big the industry was as a whole, and and understood how big, you know, the the brand was. Um, I was really excited by you know trying to to help build that into into a full scale business. Uh, so I joined FaZe Clan about three and a half years ago. uh, I think there was roughly eight people working out of a house at the time. Um, And, you know, over the last three years, I've I've been the CFO phase. Uh, We were, you know, able to grow to over 100 sort of employees. Um, You know, it's now a a global powerhouse within the the esports and gaming world. And, you know, we raised, you know, close to 60 million in debt and equity over that time. I think it's number three now on the on the Forbes most valuable sort of esports orgs at a tick over 300 million and continuing to grow. So that was sort of my my background, um, you know, uh, was incredibly lucky to, to be a part of the growth of FaZe. And I think, you know, one of the, the main things with FaZe Clan is I think that they really paved the way in terms of, uh, you know, that kind of uh, intersection of pop culture into traditional sport and entertainment as well as just, you know, yeah. opening up really large scale um brand deals and commercial deals and collaborations with, you know, traditional sporting orgs and brands like Champion and Supreme and so on. So uh, incredible time there. Um, I had a discussion sort of near near the end of last year in in relation to to moving on to to my next opportunity. Uh, For me, you know, I wasn't sort of passionate about becoming a CFO of a publicly listed company. I think my strengths were were more in the sort of commercial strategy operations uh, of the business and being involved in, fundraise and uh, investor relations and those types of things um, was presented with the opportunity to come over to GameSquare, um, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get into a little later in the podcast, but um, for me to come in as, as CEO and, and to start building out a team with, you know, people like the caliber of, of, of Yarn that we can, you know, build, build a world-class team and, and start to scale this business and, and look at really interesting sort of M&A opportunities to try and build out, you know, a world-class, uh, you know, agency digital marketing media business within gaming and esports.
0: So yeah, cool. And then obviously we got a lot, i got a lot to talk about off that, but I want Jan uh, to give you a bit of a spotlight as well, mate, just to introduce yourself.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a different background. So, you know, most of my background really is agency land. So I used to work for MediaCom, mindshare, those types of agencies running big accounts there so among them especially here in the uk the sky accounts the sky sports sky movies what they call premium you know that's about a when you add up sky in total about 180 million pounds worth of media which is a lot to spend and then you know from my work on sky sports you know more recently i was at city football group so that's the the holding company that owns the likes of man city new york city melbourne city and, and a whole variety of football clubs and there is kind of you know, and kind of Justin mentioned it as well. You know, you can't you start to see the convergence of things like football into gaming, into music, into fashion, and this this kind of inflection point that's only grown over the last couple of years. Was one of the things that kind of really interested me, and you know, when we started to to look at Man City and what it was capable of, with the talent that's there, with the stories you can tell, and actually intersecting that with different parts of gaming or music or fashion culture, we actually created something that was really quite powerful. So we did branded content series with the likes of Vice and working with Copper 90 to create, you know, unusual stories of our global fan base, you know. And I kind of left there with with Man City being one of the, you know, according to Crowdtangle, at least one of the biggest branded content producers in world football, right? Of any mm. team. So punching well above its weight and that helped it become a a very strong commercial entity as well, right? Because as as we well know, and it happens a lot in esports, there's only so much stuff you can sell on the shirt, right? And that only has so much value. I think when we look at the the world of our consumers and their audience and this is what's becoming more and more so you know they're content hungry and actually being able to tell authentic stories is kind of what you know was was really key to kind of man City's success and being able to sell that to brands becomes almost more powerful and I think when you know after I left there, I saw what phase were doing, I actually helped broker the, the deal between man City and FaZe, you know and that became a, a really powerful partnership. which I mean, I've seen recently it's, it's culminated in the Fortnite partnership with Man City Kits and the Faith Guys running stuff. But also more and more, it's also about, you know, some of the stuff you may not see, because if you follow the likes of Nate Hill, you see quite regularly that he games with Kevin De Bruyne and Amrik Laporte and Carl Walker. So actually, you know, tier one football players. And that's kind of where the world is going, right? And I think where GameSquare kind of attracted me after I left Phase was they starting to really build that infrastructure, right? So rather than being at the sharp front end of just always being about teams and the flashy stuff, it's actually starting to build the piping that helps connect those audiences and brands together. And that's, what's really, really powerful about the organization that we're building.
0: Yeah. And one of the reasons I want to chat to you guys is I'm really interested in, I guess, what Phase alums are going to be working on, you know, I'm, it's, it's pretty obvious and, you know you watch my content I'm pretty close to Clinton sparks who you know inter- I interviewed him first when he was with phase and and now with Exet, you know and they're creating you know phase with a slightly different flavor and then really interested to see what you guys are doing as well obviously with both your experience in that in that space as well is there anybody else of note that's that's left phase to create something interesting that I should be thinking about as well that you guys know of
1: I mean not not currently I, I mean there may be into the future I think that that naturally occurs when you have, uh, you know, a company that grows so quickly that develops into a juggernaut like Phase has, and I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge compliment to Phase to to have you know people having the ability to go off and start building you know their own businesses, um, you know, off the back of the experience there, but also the networks and connections that you get. I mean, not not currently, but I mean, it's probably a watch this space, right? The Phase a pardon the pun, but we'll be moving into the next phase pretty quickly. You know, you go from startup to really high growth to, you know, the next level is, you know, it, does it become a public company? Do you, you know, wh- when and how and where do they get to a liquidity event? It's about, you know, professionalizing the org more so and, and things like that. So um, it will definitely be interesting to, to watch.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I see this in um, agencies and and even other companies in the gaming space. It's They almost work like an incubator for their staff, right? As the company changes and grows, you know, it makes sense that people will come and go depending on what they're mostly interested in and they realize that they're not. You know, I mean, another example is a lot of people who work for peripheral companies will decide that actually they want to sit on the other side of the fence and open a retailer or a distributor. Like that's quite a common thing we've seen as well. So it makes sense with phase. I'm really interested to see where, you know, other people take that Um you know, that that skills and experience that they learn in that space. So so with GameSquare, um, I guess for those people who don't who don't know, you guys are a public listed company as it stands right now. Um, can you talk about your current acquisitions that you've made within this space? And then we'll go into kind of the discussion, which is the, a lot of the title of this podcast, which is talking about how you're building an ecosystem. I got some, yeah, I got a lot of questions.
1: For sure. So, yeah, I can kick off in terms of, you know, what currently lives in the, in the portfolio and, and what we're building and how we're going about it. So yep. uh, we are publicly listed on the CSE. Uh, we were, I think we were floated at roughly 25 cents in in October of last year. Uh, it's trading around 50 cents currently. So, um, you know, reasonable growth there. It's really early days for, for us as a business. Um, <clears throat> you know, currently in the portfolio and the, the original acquisition was – uh, Code Red, which is a, a UK influencer agency, and, and I'll let Jan jump into a little bit more detail on them as we as we kind of move this along. Um, Jan's obviously, you know, because of location, uh, pretty heavily involved there in helping those guys, you know, take what is a really nice profitable uh, business to the next level. Um, so that's been great, and and he's also obviously looking at you know other opportunities to grow out our our presence through, throughout Europe. So, Code Red is, a, is the agency that are sort of built into the numbers to date. Uh, we have signed and an public knowledge, so I can talk about it, uh, a, a deal with uh, an acquisition with Reciprocity, which is three assets. Uh, which will will close, uh, you know, very soon, and, and start to be reflected in our numbers, which will be nice, and you know, to, to build out that rev profile and 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 really build out the market cap. Um, you know, it probably takes us from a consolidated uh, sort of viewpoint, um, you know, for twelve months from sort of five million in revenue and um, sort of EBITDA positive to to sort of fifteen to twenty mil in rev and an EBITDA positive, which. I think that's one thing to note as we, we talk about this is we're trying to build a, you know, real uh, – we're really concentrating on the, the agency digital marketing verticals within the space, but we want to be the first publicly listed company of real revenue scale that's profitable. And we kind of keep hitting back to that. I think we have experience in, in where and how to monetize this industry, and I think that's going to start to become more and more important. Mm. Uh, with the reciprocity transaction, the three assets there are – um, GCN, which is your um, more traditional sort of gaming media company, um, they are a soup to nuts sort of um, digital marketing agency. And, and again, we can sort of talk a bit more about those guys' incredible backgrounds. I mean, Jeff came from Curse Media, uh, Keo Fox Sports. Um, they, uh, they get the space and they are incredibly connected. So we're, we're really bullish about the, the revenue growth there. Uh, and we have two, two team-based assets. Uh, you know, uh, one is a, a crossfire franchise in, in China and the other uh, a League of Legends team in Mexico City. Both really interesting markets, obviously huge reach. Uh, they give us you know optionality and nice end distribution. Um, I wouldn't say that we're in the business of acquiring teams uh, I think to, that we, we're always open to looking at team-based assets and, uh, you know, talent-based assets that make sense, but we're not in the business of deploying a lot of capital into high cash-burning assets. So um, important to note that those two assets are uh, break-even and EBITDA positive. So that helps us in terms of, you know, we're, we're definitely not against the team-based model, but for us it needs to have a value-add attached. Um mm. So, so there's sort of the four assets at the moment. Um, and then in terms of sort of opportunities where, you know, really attacking the, uh, the agency digital marketing space in the US and Europe, talking with a number of really different and interesting agencies in that space, to be honest, sort of, in the, you know, 5 to 10 million sort of revenue um, range, EBITDA positive. And you know, we think we're really well positioned with the team that we have to help provide you know, strategic support to be able to inject them with capital, obviously you get them some liquidity, which is an interesting place to be for a private company in this space. And, and you know, to be quite frank, we think we can make uh, multiples on them in the public market by, you know, bringing in complementary assets uh, for cross-selling opportunities and, and you know, all, all sorts of opportunities within, within that sort of, you know, bigger sort of media gamut in, in this space.
0: Yeah, and I think, like I think you already answered this pretty well, but I'd, I'd love a direct answer to it. Um, I'm interested in learning about your strategy of buying gross a, gr- buying growth assets versus creating your own companies versus buying revenue. It sounds like at this stage, you know, you're you're kind of focused on buying maybe a combination of revenue and growth assets. Is there a is there a mode in the future where you see yourself saying, "Well, I want to buy, you know, X or Y type media agency doesn't exist. I better build one instead." Or are you guys focusing purely just on M and A?
1: Yeah. So I think that's a really good one and, and I'll take this on Yarn and then I'm going to hand it over to you because I'm not trying to take... I know. You go ahead. You've got trade secrets. I'm not trying to take the spotlight from you. No. So, I mean, this is not this is not an M&A, just a pure M&A play. I mean, yeah, you know, our LA-based agency, GCN, I mean, we, again, we are incredibly bullish about um, <clears throat> their growth opportunities. I mean they we're getting them access to capital so it's again public knowledge you we know, bought sub receipts deal that will open once the deal closes so we'll be well funded to to get them up and moving to to make some really key hires mm-hmm. so we, we are focused on organic growth but you know to be quite frank you know <clears throat> a, a sort of rev profile of a fifteen to twenty mill mil and EBITDA positive is, is nice, but that's certainly not where we want to be. So while we think we can grow that organically, we are absolutely going to be looking at MLA opportunities. I think it's a it's a great question, Chris. And I think you're right. At the moment we're focused on we feel that we can we can attract um you know, I, I don't know if I can swear on this, but we have a no dickhead policy. So we think that we can attract some really good people um, with really nice businesses and, and, and help them go to the next level. Because I think there are a lot of really interesting private companies in this space that are, you know, three to four years in and, and thinking about, okay, how do I get liquidity? How do I access capital and so mm-hmm. forth? Um, and, and just to answer the last point, I think, look, it's not to say at some point we wouldn't look at a larger rev buy, Right. But we're not chasing revenue that's low margin that's going to hurt us in the end. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting in the public markets, you need to market your stock. But we're, we're very interested in backfilling this company with, with the fundamentals, you know, that are, that are going to, to produce margin and, and get us to profitability. So there's a couple of opportunities where Jan and I are actually starting to work on um, that are more around us building out a potential division of a business that we'd be doing ourselves through through our networks that might make more sense rather than an acquisition. So I know it's a bit of a long-winded answer because it's a little bit of each. Um, but I think right now it's organic growth, looking at, you know, uh, private companies, high growth, even positive, you know, agency assets within this space. And then as we build out that rev profile, um, there'll be opportunities to grow our businesses and, and and really scale quickly.
0: Yeah. And touching on that, the agency thing, you know, makes a lot of sense to me, like a personal quip. I've got a friend who's who's running an agency and, you know, they're doing a couple of million dollars in rev um, and he's quite young himself. So, you know, he's feeling fantastic. He was looking at a potential exit and I remember talking to him there. He was a bit shocked when he was only offered like a two X multiple on his, on his revenue really? for an exit. And I said, it's because you, you know, you've got a, you've got a cash flow rich, but asset poor business as a whole. And it would make sense to me that if you want to build a proper brand and build something on the public market that you would buy those things and roll them up together. Because we all know that these influencer agencies do fantastic margins, but sometimes the only thing they own is just the contact with the influencers and the brands, and you need something a bit more behind that. And that's, you know, that's why I've always been so bullish on things like Phase Clan and 100 Thieves, because in its in its core, you know, to me, it seems like Phase Clan is an influencer agency that has a brand behind it. And instead of, you know, the influencers just having, hey, email me at Phase Clan, they are, you know, FaZe Banks in the bio, and they live that, you know, they live that thing and they live the brands that, that uh, work with them as well.
1: Yeah, it's a medium yeah. for sure. We'll, we'll get his details from you offline. <laughs>
2: yeah, <it laughs> yeah, sounds good. And only, to, only 2x. I mean, we're fine with that. But yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think what it comes it's down just to also... Stay here. It's quite interesting. There's so many commercial models at play, right? So different influencers agencies will broker different types of deals, will use a different multiplier to kind of work out what the mm. talent rev versus the agency rev is and also, you know, start to plug in value-added services, right? And I think when you look across the market, FaceTime's a great example of this, there isn't a one-size-fits-all commercial model within Phase, right? They know that there's multiple revenue streams that they can get at, so they need to figure out exactly what it is. And I think any business worth its salt at the moment is probably exploring a multitude of ways to actually help monetize an audience or grow that audience, or find a way for that brand to enter a market safely. Um, you know, I think where, where we kind of look at as well, and again, when we've got someone like Code Red under it versus someone like GCN, they also work on completely separate models. So it isn't just a case of rolling everyone up into one big, you know, Acme esports gaming industry brand. It's kind of like a case of, mm-hmm. okay, these guys have commercial models that work, are tried and tested, are positive in terms of EBITDA. And that's kind of what we're looking for, right? We wouldn't mm-hmm. want to disrupt that model. We want to help scale it. Faster, right? And that's the kind of challenge for a lot of businesses at the moment. How do I scale quickly without access to cash, or with you know the right kind of contacts, or Expertise in place. and, that's yeah, and I really,
0: and I really feel like those who solve those who solve the commercial model will will win. You know, the the short, medium, and then the long term within esports and gaming as a whole. Like talking to Riyadh from Gamers Group, who you know they're they're a media company that owns multiple assets within the gaming and and esports. You know, media market across social media and Dot .esports and game per and things like that. And that that's one thing that he talked about with his acquisitions. He said, you know, they've they've made a lot of like four plus media acquisitions in the space and built a few of their own brands as well. And he said, every single one of those was so poorly commercialized before he bought them that it was a no brainer for him to buy them. And I had lunch with him yesterday and he said a recent acquisition for him went up five X literally in 24 hours after he bought it just because some of their processes were terrible. You know, some of their Google processes and the way they served their ads and the type of ads they served. He changed a couple of features and then boom, he's literally, he he said he called his ads manager in the morning and said, something's wrong here. He said, no, actually you're doing very well. So, you know, I feel like that happens a lot in this market too. You know, there's unlimited, there's unlimited esports agencies and there's unlimited esports teams. But from what I've found and, and trying to hire myself as well, is there are not many good sales and commercial teams at all within the esports market. There's a lot of interest from, say, you know, where you come from in the past, gen and the traditional agencies, people wanting to switch over. You know, we're talking to a few of those at the moment, say, here in Australia. And there's a lot of people who have the sales bug, who have history in gaming and esports that want to go over and do that kind of sales thing. But finding someone who has both of those... Um, is very hard, and if they do exist, often they own their own agency because they know the power of themselves. So, it would make sense to me that you know if you guys are able to make some fantastic hires in that space to to push the commercials forward and and help people to monetize better would be great because we've all seen we've all seen agencies which have you know tons of channels full of young interesting YouTubers who get tens of millions of views per month each, but they're doing one ad every seven videos, and the ad is charged at a, at a weird CPM without proper tracking links. And the thing that always bugs me the most is they're not making case studies the amount of influencer agencies that i talk to who don't have a single case study absolutely blows my mind it's nuts because i mean we have about 25 <laughs> and so if we can yeah. do it i'm sure they it's can do true. it too
2: i mean this is this is all part of the industry growing up a bit right and watching the chips fall in, in the right places and yeah know, I, I i understand obviously you know, a lot of guys are have gone away and we have a lot of influencers that are trying to get the hours in but When you really look at those businesses how can you ever scale it right if you're kind of one guy who's there doing you know eight hours worth of fortnite streaming well doing nine or doing ten is not going to make much material difference on your commercial value so i think when we talk about commercial models i don't think it's going to be one that wins out entirely i think there's going to be a a range of them which will be more stable and will drive stronger revenue and we've seen in a lot of esports teams the merchandise is definitely one that's got an early lead But over time, it's going to be around content. It's going to be around, okay, the actual value of the IP you create. And I think that's really where I don't see many people creating that IP just yet. You know, actually beyond Faze and some of the big guys who actually create their own programming or if you look at like what Venn are doing, you know, that battle to create formats, which is a very old kind of TV model and then plugging brands into that and, you know, plugging talent in, not much of that exists at the moment. So there's still a lot of, you know, battles to be won and, and fought for no doubt about that. But I'd imagine there's gonna be a range of models that do it. And, you know, agencies will will have to adapt. And that's kind of why I think, again, when we go back to what we're doing here within Game Square, we're not that front end, you know, we're not necessarily buying Fortnite teams or Counter-Strike teams and those kind of things. You know, because those games will change over time. But what will remain the same is the audience and also the plumbing that sits behind it that enables that audience and a brand to be put into contact with one another, and you know that's ultimately what we're trying to create here. So,
1: and I think mm. I think just to add to that, what what Jan's saying. So our sort of overall thesis, and it's it's quite broad, but but I think it's a good one is connecting you know connecting global brands to this ever growing you know, esports and gaming communities, this huge audience, and 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 I think. You know, to reiterate what, what Jan's saying, that the ability to be able to do that as well through multiple agencies makes sense because as you, you well know, Chris, this, this audience, is, it's very fragmented, right? The market's fragmented. So you have an ability mm-hmm. to be able to service you know brands at a different level through you know, audiences at different levels. People think about gaming and think, oh, you know, how do we reach kids? And it's not the case, as, as you well know.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. So, with with you guys, you know, is uh, I guess the first question is building an ecosystem. Is that the right way to explain what you guys are doing? And and if so, how do your acquisitions interface with each other?
1: Ecosystems, yeah, ecosystem. Yeah, ecosystem.
2: Right word for it. I mean, yes, we are trying to build an ecosystem, right? So, I always, I think people have different views on what an ecosystem really is and how it works and how it functions. For me. I always go back to, you know, my old agency days where I worked at WPP, where you'd have a Mediacom who's a media agency, you'd have a JWT, you'd have Gray, who's another creative agency, but then you'd also have a Millwood Brown who's a data company. You'd have a Zaxis, that's a kind of trading platform. And actually if you're owning footholds in all those different areas, even if you're not, you know, got the, the automotive business from X brand, at some point that brand's still gonna cut you a check. So on a very siloed basis, that is, is one way to think of it, that throughout an ecosystem, at some point, you're going to have brands cutting you checks for different things that you can provide as a service. But I think for us, and on the integration point, this is where it's, I think is really key for us, And it kind of goes back to to what I mentioned earlier about the kind of no dickhead's rule. We want to work with people that also want to work with us and also want to work with the other people in our, in our wider kind of circle of of networks agencies as it were. So, Mm. you know, there's nothing that stops the conversation between a code red and a GCN. You know, there's nothing that we don't, we don't put any barriers in place. We want them to work together because By all means, you know, what happens in one market can work in another market or there can be development of briefs, there can be more creativity on stuff. And I think that's really where any network becomes more powerful, right? It's the sum of the parts working for the greater whole, which by all means will hopefully yield better results. And I think, you know, over time, if you look at how any successful network, be that a WPP or even if you look at something like a Unilever, which owns pretty much half the food in your cupboard under several different brands, you know, adding those different things together is what essentially creates the meal or creates the ad campaign. And that is where the strength in it lies, right? That no matter what happens on one side, you know, the other side can help pick up Slap or help integrate or provide resource. And that's really how we want, I guess, the future of all our different businesses to be integrated. But look, that's kind of a Nirvana approach. The reality of that is always going to be slightly different. We'd, we'd never want to put agencies in a competitive pitch with each other. But we also know that, Individually, they have their own strengths, right? Someone like Code Red, you know, a real kind of, you know, full, deep, authentic understanding of the eSports business. You know, all those guys know eSports inside out. They're real properly into gaming, live and breathe it. You know, they're completely different to someone else that we might be looking to buy, who's more in the kind of broader gaming space. You know, the kind of guys that might look after Candy Crush Mums or more League of Legends or whatever it may be. So everyone has their own role, but we look to
1: integrate as best as we can.
0: Mm, Yeah, and
2: another...
1: Oh, sorry, Chris. Uh, the other thing I was going to say that is it's, it kind of goes to, to what you were saying and and also about what you were alluded, alluding to before and, you know, why are we attractive in terms of, you know, why, why would a private company want to be acquired by us, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, apart from, you know, the the upfront consideration for their business, Um why, why, and I think what, what Jan's saying is kind of partly that. So there is absolutely opportunity for roll-up of different agencies, but we're not in a position where we're going to come in and say, we want to acquire you because we're going to bolt on TCN and we're going to bolt in Code Red here. We we want to build really good relationships with the people that we're working with to do what is best for them. And I think that might sound all nice and fluffy, but it's, but it's the case. And I think... The, we don't necessarily need to roll them up. There might be opportunities where it makes sense or divisions of businesses or whatever for, for efficiencies and for global expansion and things like that. But overall, because, because the market is so fragmented, it's not necessarily a requirement. And I think the other part of it is in terms of why we're we attractive, we're attractive because I think we're building a team, a corporate team that uh, you know, has, has real expertise in this industry um, you know, within this industry, to what you were saying before, Chris, I do still think that at the top end, there's also a gap. You know, in terms of uh, management experience, uh, I think we have the ability to to um, help set strategy and, and growth, uh, but we're not we're not trying to butt into these businesses day to day. And you know, I, I wouldn't be telling Jeff and Pio or GCN on how to run their agency because they understand how to run their agency, but I'm there to provide strategic support. I'm there to get them access to capital, to be able to go to market and tell the story and raise funds and build a business. So I think that's why we're attractive. I think a lot of people say that, right? When they're going through this acquisition process, it's like, you know, getting gobbled up by a, by a venture fund or something where you lose control of your business. It's not, this is not that. because These businesses are not valuable to us if they, you know, if they aren't in control of their businesses we're we're here to guide the ship and to help them grow, you know, much quicker than they'd be able to grow on their own. And, you know, quite frankly, all, all, uh, you know, get the, the result at the end in this sort of share appreciation of being within public markets.
0: Mm. One, and one of the reasons I asked that, that that's interesting to me is I feel like um, for brands in the market, it's hard to place a large amount of dollars without making things extremely complex right now in esports. You know, we're working with a client right now who's spent, you know, multiple millions of dollars across the influencer market, but looking at um, how they had to do that, they've had to do that by using about 15 different agencies to date. And and you don't know any time whether that agency is good or not. You don't know anything about the history of that agency. Whereas if you've got a a large media conglomerate like happens in the traditional market, if you're a Coca-Cola, you can very easily give, you know, one to five million dollars to a conglomerate that can put you into TV, newspapers, you know, magazines, digital and everything, and and even YouTube, that they own themselves. Is that something that you guys are targeting as well, where you may have an overarching commercial team that can easily come to you with, you know, 500K and you can place that across different media entities in different countries?
1: For sure. I think that, you know, having the ability to be able to compete and perform at that larger scale level is really important while still being able to have you know, the the ability to be nimble and move like those smaller agencies. And I think that's what we're well positioned to do. And, and this is why I think you know, like a GCN is so powerful, right, is because they can pick up the phone and talk to a CMO of any major brand. Right? They've, they've worked on some really incredible stuff. They have a huge pipeline. And, but, you know, they're kind of competing at that you know, top agency level with these really large-scale traditional agencies, but these really large-scale traditional agencies, as you were saying before, Chris, doesn't necessarily understand how to reach that end audience within this sector yet. I mean, you know, that's not always going to be the case, but I, I think we're really well positioned to take advantage right now of you know, McDonald's spends $2.4 billion a year on marketing. I mean, that's not all going to gaming, but whoever's running, you know, the gaming accounts at these big agencies, are they going to risk losing the whole account by, you know, sending out a strategy around gaming or are they going to, are they going to outsource it to to an agency that has, that has the credentials and understands the market. So, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, you know, having the ability to be nimble and be able to move, but still be able to compete on that, you know, much higher level and, and larger scale.
0: Yeah, definitely. And an interesting trend I've seen in, in agency land, I guess. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, Jan, in the past couple of years. It seems like there's a massive rise in niche agencies. There's a rise in, you know, niche creative agencies, niche social and influencer agencies, and also gaming agencies as well. I've seen a lot of movement, you know, in Australia and abroad of higher ups from these large agency conglomerates, you know, been leaving, joining each other, spinning around, agencies coming and going, quite a few of them shutting down as well. Like, are you, are you seeing that as well? More money is going to these smaller niche markets?
2: To a certain extent, I mean, especially within gaming and esports, that that seems to be the case at the moment. I think when you look at agencies and the size of them are, particularly here in London, you know, you've got agencies that I worked at, which was 800 plus people, right? And that's not going to be everyone's fight. That that almost feels corporate to a certain extent. So Mm. I think people kind of find their passions and then split off and splinter in. And, you know, agencies sometimes have been very slow to react. I guess if if you look at gaming in particular, it's only been in recent months that a lot of the big ones have really launched and started talking about gaming. You know, they've put it in their kind of 2021 upfront because, you know, they were sat at home all of last year going, I wasn't gaming big when actually, you know, esports and gaming is, is, has got a long issue. You know, it's been around for a while, but only now they start to really look at it. And I think mm-hmm. you yeah, sometimes you come across quite cynical as well and, you know, that kind of also is a little bit off-putting. It's just kind of the fad for this year. You know, we, we always joke in the UK that every year is the year of mobile. Well, I think last year, the first time in 10 years, it actually was because everyone sat at home on their sofa playing with their mobile. But, yeah. you know, those agencies will, will spin around and, like you say, do different things. And I think people will always look to kind of run out on their own and, you know, whether they're successful or not, that comes down to personal relationships, comes down to their product, product offering and what they can actually offer. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of be the consultant in the room. It's actually harder to do the executional stuff. And I think that's where a lot of the business that, that we acquire and are looking at seriously right now, they have that track record. You know, they have those. You mentioned the top of the call. Cool. It's funny how some of them don't have case studies. where all of our guys have big, chunky case studies about what they can deliver and they can rule that out, and you know, any any time to show people exactly what capabilities are. And that's where the real difference comes down to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, we'll see, again, a lot of lot of movement in that space, particularly this year. Um, big agencies will announce their gaming, whatever, pod, or whatever they want to call it, their little part of it. You know, you see small agencies make big moves for big clients. You know, I think there's, there's an agency I was talking to the other day who, you know, they're probably about 50 people they're beating some of the big incumbents on on large pieces of the business. You know, it's that agility, that nimbleness, and also that authentic understanding of what it is you're talking about, be that, you know, sport or gaming or esports, you know, whichever way you wanna kind of cut it or entertainment as a whole, that's really where it went out. And as a client, you know, you kinda of mentioned it there. Do you really want to risk money? On a, on a kind of big conglomerate strategy around gaming? Or do you want to talk to some real experts who are going to handle your brand with care and put the extra hours in and really make it part of a bigger deal rather than just kind of a box ticking exercise in some of those big, big shops?
0: Mm. And I guess the first agency that's born out of gaming that comes to mind, um, who's winning the big clients you're talking about is Kairos Esports, based out of London, right? You know, they launched KFC into gaming and did a fantastic job you know, multiple yeah, look, viral uh, campaigns on there and yeah it's done very terrible. well.
2: I've got a couple of friends over there and I think when you look at them, you know, they they've you know, when you look at the setup of that team, you know, it's it's a bunch of young guys who just understand the space, right? Understand what mm. that audience was gonna to react to, you know, how they're gonna handle the brand in it. And also I guess there's there's a lot of bravery on KFC's side as well to kind of say, Hey look, you know, you guys handle this and take this into this space and we will fully entrust you with it. And I think when you look across the broad spectrum of brands, especially ones that I've worked with in the past, you know, sometimes you have some real battles with brand managers and marketeers about what a brand should and shouldn't do and who actually owns the brand. Is it, is it the, you know, the big, the big office out there somewhere on some kind of, you know, trading estate or is it, is it the audience that interacts with that brand every day? And I think those are the debates that don't necessarily, uh, have to happen so much in esports, you know. If you look at someone like G Fuel, for example, and how everyone within gaming knows G Fuel. G Fuel is so flexible, so mature about how it works, its way mm. through the audience that everyone has their own different impression of G Fuel and what it does. But everyone knows it's a great product. It's part of this, it's part of that. You know, yes, they sponsor a bunch of guys, but actually the way they work with content, the way the other things is then, you know, Kairos has kind of taken a little pinch of that kind of developed it, I guess, for, for a really big brand, you know, and KFC hats off to them. They've won a couple of awards and done really good stuff. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be a few more of those to come. I'm
0: really interested in learning about a a little bit more about, I guess, the structure of the ecosystem that, that you guys are building right now. So sitting at the top level from the Game Square eSports side, what like, like are you guys hiring right now and what sort of positions do you have sitting at that top level that support the companies that you require?
1: So, so not right now at at the game Square level. I mean, we absolutely will be for, for us right now. The focus is you know, the, the first job. I think for, for me coming in as CEO was to to go and do a fundraise, um, and we went and did that and ticked that off. Uh, once we we close on the reciprocity deal, which um, should be very, very shortly, uh, you know, as I said, we'll have access to that capital. So you know, it'll then be about deploying that capital to, to our, you know, current assets in the portfolio to help them hire. Um, so the, the hires will more be within those portfolio assets, uh, GCN and Code Red. Um, Yarn, you can probably talk to the the roles that we're looking at for Code Red. Um, but in terms of, just to, to answer that question, we, we will be at the corporate level as, you know, we continue to grow out our portfolio assets, you know, looking at bringing in, you know in house you know marketing and pr and, and things like that that are, you know, we currently outsource we we're not we're not at the level at the corporate we're not needing to at the corporate level just yet really you know go with this heavy handed team and I mean, we have a, a great and experienced public market cfo uh kevin wright our president uh, who's based in toronto um you know we're able to to take the the company public and get that get that done. And he's, he's been incredible. He's very well networked and he, he seems sees the world the same way that, that Jan and I do. So at the moment, it's a smaller corporate team. We'll, we will definitely be looking to build that out as we build out our portfolio assets. Um, but Jan, do you want to talk to a couple of the hires within – yeah, for sure. So within Code Red, you know,
2: these, these guys are, you know, super, super busy. They've got loads of stuff coming in. We're looking for social manager. We're looking for kind of talent managers. You know, that's because of the growth of those sectors, right? We need to have more people on top of stuff, executing campaigns, doing good things. And, you know, those guys are growing from strength to strength. Code Red and we'll probably be putting some new you know, jobs into the market. Again, you know, when we look at the commercial side, you know, you kind of mentioned it there, there seems to be a skills gap to a certain extent. And I think we also see that in a lot of other jobs, there's some quite proficient people, but also there's some skills gap there. So we're being very careful in who we hire as well. We want to make sure we get the right people in on those fronts, but you know, it's one of the things in the industry mm-hmm. that, you know, that there isn't really any, any training apart from doing, you know, everyone's got an Instagram account and stuff like that, but you know, we're being very cautious. I think Code Red's in a, in a great position. I think, you know, if you keep your eyes on, on that as a business in itself, you know, they've already got Bud Light as a partner, you know, did some great stuff with them in Fanatics last year, broken some deals there did a lot of content stuff. There's going to be more of that stuff coming from, from this stable for sure. And, you know, it's, it's definitely one to keep an eye on, especially with the new hires coming in. It just gives a bit more flex in that organization. And again, when you look at you know, what Game Square is offering, it's being able to look at that business and help those businesses go, right, okay, this is how you can kind of structure yourselves a bit better in terms of roles and responsibilities. And myself from an agency background can look at it and go, right, here's the kind of functions and channels that you need to be using or some process you might want to implement. You know, working with Luke, who's the kind of COO of that business to really just kind of get down what are the priorities, what can really help you grow X, you know, five X ten in the next eighteen months, you know, and that and that in this instance is hiring some some more talent to the business to really take up some of the some of the workload and start you know being able to give everyone a bit more headspace to do that business development side and actually onboard new clients.
1: Yeah, having someone like Yarn come in, Chris, that, to help a business like Code Red. I mean, Luke and Ben and Code Red are amazing. They've done an incredible job with with that business. As you know, when you're you're in a, a private company that you're that you're running you you get really stuck in a day-to-day and you, you're basically doing everything and, and it sort of yeah. st- stops you from being able to go out and really do business development and win new business and you know they understand their business better than anyone so you know we want to be able to provide them with the support to be able to go and do that um, so we can you know best utilize them so bringing someone you know, with experience that Yarn has to, you know, not only open up pipelines and help them, you know, build out, you know, some more structure and strategy around the business. It's just, just to free them up so, you know, we can help them really grow and take it to the next level.
0: Yeah. Now yeah, that's definitely true what you're saying. And I guess, you know, for anyone listening would reiterate that for sure. It's really easy to get caught up in the day to day of, you know, trying to sign a contract and maybe one, one PR client, And then all of a sudden you just start chasing more because you want the revenue without sitting, you know, having someone to sit above you like with you guys or having a board that can, you know, catch up with you once a month or quarterly and say, you know, what's the bigger picture here? What are you guys working on? What are you building towards?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it helps, you know, for sure. We, we all in this day and age, you know, want this sort of instant kind of gratification and short-term wins and it's all like here, now, now. But to have that, I think you're right. To have, you know, we have a really experienced board you know, for me, it's been a really you know steep learning curve in terms of coming into sort of running a company in the public markets. But to have people with experience above you that hold you accountable, that you can learn from and develop, I think it's really important. And I think we have a really good mix of that, you know, throughout the company. And again, it goes back to the no dickhead policy. We we want to build a, a company of really good people that want to work hard, and we're, we're all aligned. And you mm-hmm. know, they get to walls, celebrate, and achieving the success together. It sounds a bit fluffy, but I mean, it's it's the truth. And I think when you when you're working day to day with people that that you like and and that you get along with and, and that you trust, and you know, makes it makes it a lot easier to to achieve results.
0: Yeah, that no, makes sense. Got to give the green tick on Code Red. I'm using them right now for a uh, for a campaign with a client, so they're doing pretty well. I always talk to Luke on Discord, so <laughs> you got the you got the Chris mayer Smith ticker approval there. There you go. <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> Another, something that I really wanted you to explain, we'll Justin. We'll click
2: this up and put it on our
0: website. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something I really wanted you to explain to to everyone, Justin, um, and explain to me a bit better as well. So in, in the past in esports, historically, there's been a lot of capital raises happening. There's been a lot of revenue coming to agencies and they've used that to fund exciting things. There's been a lot of family office, angel funding, VCs, et cetera. But debt, financing is something that's extremely new to the market so like you mentioned before phase went through um doing some debt financing there's some other private companies i know that are going through doing some debt as well could you just explain to the listeners a little bit as to what is the difference between debt and and raising capital but also why a company or specifically why a company right now might go into debt financing instead of raising capital just in a general sense
1: yeah for sure so i mean for for, for Game Square, we, we don't have any debt as a company, um, and, and we're not looking at raising debt. I mean, it was actually a, a really good move by by Phase at the time. So we we took a uh, would have been I think it was thirty million Canadian in debt. It was about twenty three million US at the time, uh, and that was roughly 18 months ago, um, that's actually been paid off now. But at the time it was really interesting because mm-hmm. there were so many things going on that we needed access to capital to be able to, you know, capitalize on as a business. But in terms of where our valuation was at, uh, it, it, it wasn't at the level that, it, that we knew that it could be or would be with, with additional capital. So, you know, instead of taking in an additional $30 million, whatever the amount is, right. And instead of taking another 20 million us or, or 25 million us in as equity at uh, sort of 140 million valuation, you know, and then you, you heavily dilute the company, right. Because when you're, you know, that's for for a company the size of phase clan and where phase can get to, to take in 20, 25 million at one forty, that's obviously a fair chunk of your company that you're giving away. Um, and you know, I think we knew that phase was going to be worth a lot more than that, but we still needed access to capital. So debt's obviously a way that you're kind of backing yourself in, right? Obviously you have interest payments, you don't have interest payments when you, when you, when you sell equity in a company, but you, you don't dilute yourself either. So it made a lot of sense and it was, um, you know, it was a good move by us as a business at the time. It it got us uh, money to be able to go and hire star-studded employees like Jan Newmeister and and so forth. But but it really gave us the ability to to go into you know new lines of business and and look at new teams and new markets and all sorts of stuff. And and is part of the reason why Phase is what it is. Um, that's now been paid off, and I think Phase is raising. And and I'm, I may be wrong, but I think their last pre-money raise was at two hundred fifty million. You know, that's a lot more than one hundred forty. So to be able to pay off that debt and be able to raise at a higher valuation, you know, it's it's really about um, dilution for your current shareholders, and uh, that's really why you would probably take debt as opposed to equity. But also, I mean, there are other reasons early on. In, in your stages as a business, you know, phase, we didn't take any VC money. We took private money and we had the ability to because we had a huge audience and we had a really compelling story. Um, mm. Not everybody is that lucky, right? So people may take debt instead of taking VC money because of the terms of the equity and things like that. So there are different reasons, but for us, it was really around um, dilution and it and proved to be the right call.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see if it becomes something that's a bit more common, you know, especially with COVID driving down interest rate prices as well. You know, I've, I have another example of a friend who's who's doing a round um, of debt financing right now to make an acquisition. And it makes perfect sense for him because the acquisition that he's buying is cash flow positive. It has fantastic revenue and he's buying it at a lower multiple. So it makes perfect sense for him to just do the simple math, to say, well, I'll take out, you know, this $1 of, of debt financing, buy this company for three and I'll have it paid off in three years with the interest.
1: For sure. And then, you know, there's also convertible debt and, and other instruments that make a lot of sense as well, uh, where, you, where you may take a debt that has conversion features based on, you know, terms of the deal, which, are, which are, I think we're seeing much more um, in, in the sort of gaming market for sure.
0: Mm. So what sort of acquisitions are Gamesquare looking at now? So you've mentioned that you've, you know, made a lot of plays into kind of the influencer and more traditional agency space. You know, you haven't ruled out esports teams entirely. Is there anything else that you guys are interested in? Like, you know, um, anything from, from merchandise to any other sort of companies?
1: I mean, not, not merchandise as such. We're definitely looking in the agency space again, you know, the the sort of digital marketing media type agencies that specialize within this space and definitely crossover into sport and other forms of entertainment that make sense Uh, more on the brand side, probably at the moment, but we are also looking on the influencer side. I think we have a, as we've talked about, we have a a really great influencer business in the UK Um, could be interesting to, to look at ways to to make that a global business. Um, I think there are some other interesting opportunities that we're looking at in terms of, you know, end distribution partners um which which make a bit of sense and also the front end right and in terms of interesting kind of data platforms they're informing brands on how to reach that end audience so we've been talking mm-hmm. with a couple of those as well um again it's 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 i know it sounds reasonably broad but we are really building a business that we think is soup to nuts in connecting brands to end consumer and uh you know, without giving away too much, I think we're, we're, we're pretty close to, to be able to you know, um, announce some pretty exciting stuff coming, you know, going forward.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. That sounds pretty interesting. Um, Yeah. Really interested to see how, you know, how you're, how you're able to find those right fits in the industry. And I guess, are you like, are you looking at a completely global play here as well? Like you did say that you've monitored the Australian market. Obviously you've got, you know, you've got companies and employees right now across the U S and the UK as well. Are you looking into, into Asia, um, you know, into wider Europe or, or Southeast Asia?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough one to try and just, we're going to, you know, scattergun approach you know, this global business, yeah. uh, you know, we, we have a presence, obviously, in China and Mexico City through the two-team assets that came in through the reciprocity transaction. They're going to sort of be a bit of a longer play for us in terms of working out those strategies. Right now, the, the focus for us is North America and Europe. Um, so we're, we're really focused on agency, digital marketing vertical, within gaming in, in the US uh, and, and Europe. But But you're right, Chris, I mean – it's not to say that we wouldn't look at opportunities in Australia, in Brazil, in Southeast Asia, in China, in other markets that make sense. But there, we, we think they're a little bit further down the track, right? We really want to you know build out the core business, build out our revenue model here, prove out the model and and then enter new markets because it's, it's not the exact same model as you would know, uh, in each market. Um, we are really well positioned in China with our connections through LGD, uh, to, to really make a play there, but we probably think it's a little premature at the moment.
0: Mm. And I've heard similar things from people who've, you know, who've done exactly that, you know, had a, had a headquarters and established business in the U S made an acquisition in the UK and London and ultimately given it up because they've said, you know, it's just not where we're physically located. It's too hard to, you know, battle those time zones. It's too hard to battle the cultural differences, the business differences. You know, sometimes brands, well, a lot of the time brands that you'll deal with, you know, the, the local brand is only interested in advertising in London. So it's hard if, you know, where does, your, where does your goals lie or where does your loyalty lie with what part of the business? And the last thing you want is to have different bits of your business fighting against each other, right, and fighting for your attention.
1: Yeah, I think COVID's made it a little easier in terms of, you know, dealing with people. You're, you're generally, you know, if you're okay with the lack of sleep, you're behind a screen, so you, you, your location isn't as important. But I think you're right. I, I mean, you're dealing, it's been much easier getting yarn um, in and working with the Code Red guys, given knowledge of market and time zones and, having Yarn focus on building out the European business. And that's not to say that he's not going to be heavily involved in opportunities in the US and helping our you know, US businesses build a presence over in Europe, but in the same way that we're now looking at some of the opportunities that Yarn can bring and building out their, their opportunities in the US. So I, I think you're right. I think to, to a degree, um, you know, COVID's sort of uh, broken down the barriers a little bit more. Um, but but it is still nice to have some boots on the ground in in those markets as you kind of you know start to expand.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you explained it clearly because I have so many people approaching me all the time looking to get acquired. So hopefully they're watching this or listening to this <laughs> podcast later on and they'll they'll hit you guys up in the in the yeah, DMs. Just right.
1: so. send them my email. We'll chat with them.
0: Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I, I, and, and- and I guess, you know, being respectful of you guys' times and we're sitting in three different time zones right now as well, I'm interested in talking a little bit about LinkedIn as well. So, you know, for anyone who's listening to this podcast right now, they're like listening on LinkedIn and have known that it's been extremely pivotal, pivotal to so many businesses in, in growing in this space. I'm interested in learning for you guys as well. Do you do you as GameSquare or the companies that you own have a LinkedIn marketing strategy and how are you exposing yourselves into that market or is that something that you, you haven't activated on yet?
1: Yeah, I mean... Not something we've activated on yet. I think we all use LinkedIn regularly. Um, So you – I think you're breaking up a little bit, Jan. Our our advisors um, actually that you were referring to before – you know, use LinkedIn regularly. Kevin uses LinkedIn. I, I often go on LinkedIn to, to get a lot of my sort of information in relation to, to esports and gaming. So it's an interesting one. I think we're very much open to a wider strategy there, but, but not something uh, that come in place, you know, today.
0: I'm really interested to see if more public listed companies take that up to, you know, to interface with potential investors. The, you know, I guess the leaders in that market that I've seen are probably like the the ETF, you know, the ETF based guys that have done really well in that space, you know, Patrick and, and Tim Maloney, um, you know, we're taking on Herb May, for example, who is you know, kind of uh, someone who came up very quickly in the market through utilizing LinkedIn. I'm going to be interested to see how you guys tackle that. And, and I do know some other companies that are looking to, you know, looking to list in the future that are including that as in, as a you know pivotal part of how they communicate.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll refer to Neil Duffy, the King of LinkedIn on uh, <laughs> what our strategy is I'm sure he's watching.
0: Yeah. He was in the chat before anyway. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, he's, he's a busy man. So he's probably tuned off, but uh you know, he's the king of LinkedIn, so we'll, we'll we'll tap into him for for the best way to utilize. But no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think LinkedIn is a great place to share information, uh, you know, and to be able to get in front of really influential people, get your message across. Uh, so yeah, it, it's an interesting one. I think we all use it pretty regularly as an overarching strategy. Is probably something we need to think about it a bit more. Yeah, you
2: know, yeah. You know, Sorry, Jan, you were I'm saying. Yeah, that, look, LinkedIn's a super powerful tool. I think it's been underutilized by most, by most brands, by most people individually. Um, you know, I think a lot of people still use it in a way that probably isn't what it's now designed to do, which is just kind of growing your followers, accepting every invite. Actually, you know, one of the things I learned off uh, a kind of friend of mine, a guy called Mouth Mims, who runs Strive Partnership, is that you go through your LinkedIn fairly regularly and just kind of hide and kind of unfollow a lot of people to get rid of some of the chaff because, you know, as with all content businesses, right, and LinkedIn is a content platform, you end up seeing more stuff than is actually ever going to be relevant, right? You need to kind of train an algorithm to start picking out a bit more opportunity. And particularly, you know, with, with joining GameSquare, you know, I'm still getting a lot of stuff from say, from the football side of the business that I used to work in or from an old agency side that I may want to up or downgrade. So actually, a bit of housekeeping on that is really there. But in terms of us also marketing, it's going to become a platform that's going to be more and more powerful, right? There's a lot of functionality on there that goes properly unused, you know, whether it's sales navigator style stuff or whether it's the in-mail. You know, small agency, if I was a small agency now, I'd be hitting that really hard. And there's also extensions you can buy for LinkedIn as well, which helps you get email addresses and phone numbers of marketing directors. You know, I'm kind of giving the cat out the bag a bit, but that essentially is a really, really powerful tool, right? And it's it's all database. It's all kind of quite relevant. And I think if I was a small agency now, I'd be absolutely knee-deep in some of this stuff to try and grow my sales, grow my share of voice as well, and use LinkedIn as a, as a content tool and an extension of what I'm currently doing.
0: Mm, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a great way to get ahead. And I mean, you know, using the personal examples that I've used on this podcast before, you know, I was able to meet, um, you know, Jeff Pabs from from Phase through that. Clinton Sparks, you know, our investors came to me through LinkedIn. And and, and to date, you know, in the past twelve to eighteen months, around seventy percent of my business's revenue came directly from LinkedIn, and probably yeah. about 50, 50 to sixty percent of my clients. And a lot of that is due to the content that we put out. And just like you're saying, Jan, there is a lot of very poor quality content on LinkedIn, and we found that when we simply upped our content quality by 10%, you know, we saw like a 50% growth in viewership um, people adding us and, and also comments and, and shares. And then also business inbounds as well to the fact of, or to the point of where we had to hire a VA to work, you know, two and a half hours every morning, just triaging my LinkedIn inbound messages. But you know, it's something that's worked out extremely well. And like you said, it's underutilized because people are either too scared to post don't add people or they're just posting crap all the time. And you see people post, you know, Hey, this new vacuum cleaner does this. And it's just like, it's just like Facebook all over again. And I can definitely resonate with what you're saying about cleaning up your feet as well. It's, it's something that, an old friend of mine, Jamie Skeller, who works for a public sports company here in Australia, um, kind of taught me and I follow with my Twitter, for example. Like I'm extremely stringent with who I follow on Twitter. And sometimes, you know, people get a bit upset when you unfollow them on Instagram or Twitter. But, you know, if you go to my Instagram, you'll see that I think I'm following under 100 people. And on Twitter as well, you know, you can you can go through and there's a there's a specific reason, except for maybe, I don't know, five maybe meme pages on there. There's a, There's a specific reason I follow every single person on there too. So, yeah, I can definitely resonate with all those points that you were talking about for sure so guys where's I mean if someone wants to be acquired by you guys or follow you or, or be hired as, as things are coming up where's the best way well, where's the best place to get in, in uh, touch with the CEO Justin Kenner yeah. or Square?
1: yeah I mean so Kevin's information is, is on our website, gamesquare.com. His his email's Kevin at Gamesquare.com. But I mean I'm more than happy to to take inbound directly, Justin at gamesquare.com, where you know, we're we're always looking at new opportunities and, and the best way to build out the business and, and also to bring in really quality people. So um, you know, definitely open to to hearing from people that 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 may fit within you know, those parameters for sure.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks guys for coming on today and and um yeah, I'm glad to get a lot of those a lot of those questions answered. I'm gonna be really interested to see who the next company is that comes in that wants to talk to me who's building an esports ecosystem. Because it's something I've been looking into for a long time and talking to a lot of people. So um, I'm excited to track your process and on and your progress. And like I said, I'm also really interested, not just for that fact, but also because of phase clan alum, like we talked about at the start of the podcast. You know, I think you know, phase for many reasons are leading the industry and sometimes they can do things better and sometimes Sometimes they do things much better than others. So I'm really interested to see how, you know, more people may leave as, as they scale and change direction to do some things like you guys are doing as well.
1: For sure. Cool, Fantastic. man. Well, thanks for having us. It's been good chatting. No
0: worries. Thank so thanks for coming on, guys. And thanks, everyone, for listening in to the Big Esports Podcast, or Big Gaming Live. As always, this is live on LinkedIn and Twitch. Uh, this is the first one of 2021, but now
1: we've got a whole bunch more scheduled for you guys, so make sure you tune in. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.